Good day and welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. Our guest today is Professor Vera Tolls of the University of Manchester and she is going to talk to us about Russia's own Orient, that is to say, Central Asia and the Caucasus as viewed by Russian ideologues in the metropoles of Moscow and St. Petersburg at the turn of the last century. Condescending stereotypical Orientalists, these guys were not. Themselves drawn from various parts of Russia and Europe, though heavily influenced by German ideology, these people believed in encouraging, not putting down, the development of subnationalisms among the peoples and provinces of the Russian Empire. Led by Viktor Romanovich Rosane of the Oriental Languages Faculty at the University of St. Petersburg, these scholars, as Professor Tolls notes, exercised an influence that went beyond the confines of academia and the socio-political system in which they lived and worked. Both post-colonial scholarship and the modern Russian state, entities that share an uneasy relationship with each other, bear strong traces of the theories and ideas put forth by the turn of the century St. Petersburg intelligentsia. Good morning, Professor Good morning. Good morning, Dara. Uh, well, thank you very much for doing this for the New Books Network. And it's, uh, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Because it's a very interesting book. I mean, something you generally don't see club together, you know, like, well, Russia in well, Asia. It's not very mainstream South Asian. So it's, uh, it's going to be very intellectually stimulating for our listeners, I'm sure. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. It's uh, very exciting for me to address um, your audience and uh, have a forum to discuss my book and ideas in it. Um, yes, yeah, so to start off with, could you tell our audience something about yourself, you know, your research interests? Have you, like, you know, developed an interest in Russian Orientology, well, you know, from scratch? Yeah, yes, yeah, so um, I'm... Um, Currently, a professor of Russian studies at the University of Manchester in uh, the United Kingdom, and I've also been heading the Department of Russian and East European Studies at Manchester University for now seven years. Um, originally, I came from Russia. Uh, uh, I came to Britain 15 years ago, but not straight from Russia. I went via Germany and the United States, where I lived and worked as well. Um, I'm uh, both a historian of Russia uh, and also um, an analyst of uh, contemporary developments in the country. Um, in terms of my historical research, um, the periods which uh, interest me most are the late imperial period, and I probably should explain uh, what I mean. It started yeah, from the late 19th century to 1917 uh, revolutions in Russia. Uh, and then um, I believe that the first decade post-1917 in many ways continued the processes which started in late imperial period. So I'm also very interested in the 1920s. It was a fascinating period of Russian history. Um, and uh, obviously in terms of um, history, uh, contemporary uh, research, I'll just explain in a moment what issues uh, about today's Russia which interest me most. 
in terms of my research overall, there are two kind of broad areas um, I uh, tend to look at. And the first area is the relationship between intellectuals and particularly academics and political power in Russia. And of course, political regimes in Russia, uh, even in a more liberal period, like the late imperial period, were uh, coercive, let alone was the Soviet period. And so I'm interested in how intellectuals dealt with this political control. And the situations I tend to focus on are the situation when uh, intellectuals are able to subvert this political control and exercise their own influence on um, policymaking. Uh, and then there is another kind of, uh, in, in fact, related issue which interests me. Of course, intellectuals are and have been historically very interested in the question of sort of identity, sort of these large questions, how we understand uh, the world around us and our own position in uh, this world. So I have um, published uh, a book and uh, a whole series of articles on, on the construction of various definitions of Russian nationhood. So how Russians historically understood themselves as a nation, but also as an empire. Um, and how these historical perceptions continue to influence um, people today. Uh, and many of these constructions uh, of uh, nationhood are, of course, articulated by the elites. And then the public responds in a different ways to these constructions. And what I'm interested also is the relationship between the perceptions, kind of intellectual perceptions, in a way, of what Russia is uh, and has been as a nation and empire, and political choices uh, that elites have made in the past and uh, also today. And my latest book, which um, you've kindly suggested we'll discuss today, brings together, in fact, these two strands in my research. Uh, it ultimately investigates the interplay between power and knowledge in the academic studies in Russia of non-European societies. Um, but also the relationship between these intellectual pursuits, uh, but also shifting perceptions of Russian nationhood. And this book is basically historical research, uh, because I'm looking at the period between the 1880s, uh, and I can later explain why this is uh, my starting point, and the late 1920s. So it's uh, uh, about 40 years I'm interested in. There is a specific reason why I chose these 40 years, and I'm looking at particularly the continuities between this late imperial and early Soviet uh, periods. Um, I, I don't know whether I've explained enough what uh, I've been interested in intellectually for some yeah. time now. So, actually, uh, what do you do studying uh, the relationship between Russia and empire? And could you just tell us something about the main argument in the book? Um, okay. Now, um, 
should I first maybe um, start explaining how I went about sort of writing this book? Because oh, yeah, uh, my ideas about it sort of changed um, in the course of my research. Yeah, yeah that's fascinating, actually, because, I mean, this is a period that is, you know, very often studied by people who are interested in empire, you know, like the late um, 19th century and the early 20th century. That's my specialism, you know. Well, for the British Empire, but yeah, you do need to look at how ideas have evolved, so please do tell us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so, you, you probably uh, um, many of your listeners will um, know that uh, the countries like Russia, but also it's very similar um, to India, that modern identity, uh, identities um, uh, in um, your home country, my home country, have been historically constructed in um, kind of comparison with uh, what is often called the West. And in uh, Russia, there has been, of course, since the time of Peter the Great, this fascination of how Russia relates to Europe. But Russia, of course, uh, was historically an empire, and by the late 19th century, uh, uh, it expanded enormously eastwards and southwards, and it included Siberia, the Far East, the Caucasus, Central Asia, and there were also various non-European, non-Christian communities living along the Volga River at the kind of very heart of uh, what Russians already in the 19th century felt there was their national uh, territory. And uh, we'll talk a little bit, I'll talk a little bit about how all these categories we use very often, uh, East, West, Orient, even Europe, Asia, are constructed categories. They don't define uh, any um, clear, uh, really existing realities. They're basically um, intellectual uh, constructs. Um, but they, these constructs are important in how people um, sort of define themselves, define their own societies. And so Russians, of course, thought not only about um, various West Europeans who have been influencing Russia a lot since the time of Peter the Great in particular, but also how, um, what the relationship uh, of, uh, this, again, even Russians uh, constructed category of uh, various groups of Russian society who went to Siberia, the Caucasus, Central Asia, how to, they related to uh, these territories which Russia kept and kept acquiring. And, of course, since the 1970s, uh, in scholarship, a uh, framework of uh, understanding uh, this construction of identities, particularly the construction of identities in relation to external others, um, have been dominated by a particular model uh, which is um, often connected with the name of Edward Said. Uh, and again, uh, I'm sure many of the listeners um, would have known his book, Orientalism, published in uh, 1973 for the first time. Um, and uh, um, Said, of course, postulated that the so-called Orient, a very much constructed category, played enormous role in uh, defining how Europeans understood themselves and this regular stereotyping of non-European societies as sort of inferior uh, to Europe. Um, 
made Europeans kind of more confident and more proud about um, their own um, identity, about their own place in the world. Um, and um, of course, uh, there have been scholars um, since the, at least the 1980s debating how uh, the Russian uh, engagement with the so-called Orient um, fitted with uh, the Saidian model. But at the time when I decided to write my book, there was no systematic exploration of the Russians, Russian approach to representing uh, non-European societies. And I thought that the best starting point to explore this issue would be to look at uh, the writings of um, Russian orientologists, so-called experts uh, on um, non-European societies, because these experts claim that they knew the Orient best. So initially I envisaged quite a broad study of um, Russian academic perceptions of the Orient, starting with Peter the Great and um, going into the 20th century. Uh, and when one reads these writings, one sees that um, these Russian authors constantly claim that Russia had some kind of special relationship to uh, the Orient. Why? Because the Russians were unsure um, about their own identity vis-a-vis -vis Europe, uh, but also because non-European communities were part of the same uh, political entity as uh, Russians. Um, Russia uh, was um, a land-based contiguous empire, so non-European communities lived side by side uh, with the Russians, not somewhere overseas. But when I read the materials of the 18th century, early 19th century, it seemed to me that all these claims about specificity of Russia's approach to studying non-European society uh, were just a figure of speech. Every nation at the time, every community in Europe tried to say that it was something specific about it. So it was more about Russia and Russians themselves than about their approach to um, anyone else. But then when I moved into reading the material for the 1880s uh, onwards, uh, it seems that's uh, looking to me that in that particular period there was something specific about how Russian uh, experts uh, on the so-called Orient, in Russia the word is Vostok, um, there was something specific about what they were doing. And in particular, they criticized what their counterparts in the rest of Europe, in Western Europe, were publishing, and their criticism was very interesting, very radical. Um, and so I decided to just explore in detail that particular period and ask uh, why there was something so specific about that period. Then, of course, there, when we are talking about the 19th, early 20th century, even today, who are these experts, so-called experts in non-European societies? Uh, very varied group, very diverse group. There were 
Christian missionaries uh, who went into non-Christian societies trying to proselytize, and they wrote accounts of what they saw, what they encountered. There were military personnel who were basically building, physically building the empire, but they also some of them had intellectual pursuits. There were various um, 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 administrators who also left their accounts, and there were academics. Uh, again, academics were involved uh, in policy making sometimes, but their main preoccupation uh, was research, and they first learned about their um, object of study uh, in a classroom. And this is a group, just academics, defined as I've just done. Uh, that's who interests me. Again, in Russia, there were various academic centers, but there was one particular interesting center at the University of St. Petersburg and later Leningrad. And there, uh, in uh, the 1880s, a very major figure started to preside over um, academic oriental studies, as they were called at the time. And his name was Viktor Romanovich Rosen. He was of German origin, but completely russified by them, German. And uh, he created the whole school around himself, very innovative, very kind of revisionist. And this is the school of Victor Rosen, which interests in my, me in my book. So from a very broad study, I ended up looking at the period of 40 years and a group of about a dozen people at the end. So could you tell us um, something more about Rosen and his ideology and, of course, like the people he probably nurtured? Yeah. Um, now, uh, I should say that um, there are just uh, roughly two different approaches of how we can look at, let's say, specialists on the so-called Orient in the past. We can assess their work from contemporary state standpoint, or we can try to assess them within the context in which they lived and worked, and understand the logic of their position. And it's the latter that I try to do in my book. So I'm looking at this um, group of people in St. Petersburg University. The uh, major kind of figure, the mentor, was Viktor Romanovich Rosen. He was a specialist on Islam and a specialist in Arabic studies. And what he tried to do... Actually, then he followed the trend which first emerged in Germany in about 70s, 80s. Um, he tried to liberate the study of Islam from uh, Christian missionary work, Christian missionary polemics. He tried to, again, from our contemporary standpoint, probably not entirely successfully, but he tried to understand Islam on its own terms rather than seeing it as a corruption of Christianity as um, or competitor to Christianity as Islamic uh, missionaries uh, tended uh, to do. Uh, and uh, also um, Rosen believed, as did his predecessors, that Russia uh, had a special relationship with, uh, with the East because of the presence of uh, Eastern uh, minorities uh, within the country, within the same state borders. Uh, but rather than just talking about it, he decided to act on it, 
Um, and his idea was that Russian scholars should prioritize studying what uh, he called Russia's own Orient. And so my book, um, Russia's Own Orient, The Politics of Identity and Oriental Studies in the Late Imperial and Early Soviet Period, starts with a quote from Rosen. And Russia's Own Orient, again, it's uh, particularly Eastern Siberia, um, Far East, uh, the Caucasus, uh, Central Asia, uh, and uh, the minority groups in the lower Volga uh, region. And around Rosen, who was always a very charismatic personality, a group of younger scholars uh, emerged, um, uh, among whom kind of the leading members were um, Sergei Oldenburg. Uh, Oldenburg was a specialist on India uh, and Buddhism in particular. And following Rosen's advice, he studied not only India and Buddhism outside the borders of Russia, but Russia's own Buddhist communities. And that's what interests me in the book. He studied, for instance, the Buryats, and I'll talk about it um, uh, later in a moment. Another uh, major figure uh, was uh, Vasily Bartelt. Uh, he was probably the closest in his research interest to um, Rosen. Bartelt was a specialist on Islam, uh, but again, under the influence of his mentor, he decided to focus on recently acquired uh, Russian imperial domains in Central Asia. Um, then uh, another figure uh, was Nikolai Mar. And Mar, uh, again, I'll talk about it in a moment, was absolutely central in um, ensuring this revisionist trend in uh, uh, Russian scholarship. Mar himself was from the Caucasus. He was half Scottish, half Georgian. And he was both a member of the imperial academic elite, but he also always felt as a colonial subject, somebody who is judged by Europeans and stereotyped and um, in a way humiliated by European imperialists. Um, and he uh, is more known for his uh, quite bizarre and maverick linguistic theories, but he was also foremost specialist on the Caucasus. Uh, and a very famous archaeologist of the Caucasus. And then another figure um, was uh, Fyodor or Theodor Shcherbatskoy, who used to be very well known in India, because he was a specialist on uh, Indian philosophy, uh, but he also was interested in Buddhism. And these people also had their own um, uh, disciples, um, whom we'll uh, uh, talk about. So this is uh, the group. And uh, what they did, and what interests me in the book, their intellectual ideas, but also political impact of the ideas. Okay. Now, shall I, uh, would you like to, uh, me to um, answer a particular question, or should I uh, just... No, no, please carry on. Please carry yeah. on, because we don't want to interrupt the narrative. Yeah. Okay. So uh, first I'll describe the ideas of uh, this um, group of people. The first very interesting set of ideas and something which underpinned their work 
they believed, um, following Rosen, but uh, very often the next generation becomes even sort of more radical than uh, the, the teachers, uh, mm-hmm. they believed that this East-West dichotomy, Europe-Asia dichotomy, which so much underpinned European perceptions of non-European societies, was a sort of figment of imagination. Um, and in particular, uh, Vasily Bartelt um, started teaching uh, in 1905, not surprisingly, it's in the context of Russia's war with Japan and Russia losing to Japan in that war. He started teaching a course in uh, St. Petersburg University on um, how the Orient, the East, has been historically perceived uh, in Europe. And there he starts by explaining that not just East and West, but Europe and Asia were have been constructed categories, and uh, they are largely political constructs. And uh, very often the ideas that something is inferior, something is superior, are politically motivated. The boundaries of where Europe, Asia, East, West are supposed to be, he shows how changed historically and very often depended on a particular political position of the person drawing the boundary. So it's actually very modern, very sophisticated research, uh, which we often connect, these ideas we connect with a later part of the 20th century, but in fact they first were articulated and in fact forgotten at the turn of the 20th century, not in the beginning, not at the end of the 20th century, but first at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, and uh, also, Bartholdt uh, criticized the whole range of scholars, and if we actually look at the list of scholars he criticized, it's very similar to the list of scholars Said criticizes. Mm-hmm. Um, so he criticized the whole range of scholars for extrapolating Europe's, Europe's current political and cultural predominance onto the past. Uh, I have one question. Yeah. Um, as you mentioned, uh, obviously there was a certain amount of, you know, British-Russian rivalry during that time, you know, especially with regard to India. Now what I'm wondering is that, okay, they had British Orientalists as well, or Orientalists as they call them. What was the relationship between British Orientalists and Russian Orientalists? And what is the possibility that the Russians or even the British, you know, frame their views, you know, in response to the views the other party had, you know, just to mark themselves out as different, you know, perhaps in an effort to engage with the colonized people? Uh, sorry, I, I couldn't hear properly. Uh, yes. You can sure. repeat, please. Oh, definitely. Well, it's, um, I mean, during the time period we're looking at, there was obviously a certain amount of rivalry between Great Britain and Russia, you know, over the Asiatic Empire, especially with regard to India. And I'm just wondering that, you know, you had a lot of, like, British Orientalists and they had a set of views which were actually pretty different, almost opposite to what the Russian held, you know. What is the possibility that, you know, each side actually formulated their views about the East after looking at, you know, what their opponents thought about, like, the East. I mean, what kind of interaction existed between British Orientalists and Russian Orientalists? Yeah, that's a a very good question, and I should have sort of mentioned it before, that obviously these Russian Orientologists, they didn't operate in a vacuum. 
in um, and they have been in constant sort of dialogue with their counterparts in uh, other parts of Europe. But then uh, I'll also talk about how important the dialogue with people um, in the so-called East was for uh, my sort of academics. Um, but um, the, partly all this revisionism I, I've started to talk about was a reflection of pan-European trend. And at the time, we should remember that the uh, late 19th, early 20th century, the uh, main center of so-called orientology was not Britain and France, it was Germany. Uh, and um, the revisionist trend, sort of the questioning of um, European sort of prejudices, uh, started first in, uh, in German scholarship. And there is an excellent book which I can recommend if you are interested in the subject on German Orientalism by Susan Marchand, published a few years ago. And she shows how the revisionism we often associate with Said and starts in Germany in the late 19th century. Um, but then there is also kind of engagement, competition, rivalry with France and, um, uh, and um, Germany and uh, France and Britain. And in uh, Russian scholarship, there was a debate uh, precisely uh, about the relationship between power and knowledge and uh, uh, whether Britain should be a model, will, will be see, should be seen as a model because um, British Oriental studies were much more applied. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, the role of, um, for instance, administrators, imperial administrators in orientological research was much greater than in Germany, which started its imperial um, expansion in Africa later and on much smaller scale, and their sort of armchair orientologists dominated the field. And in my group of scholars was very oriented towards Germany and claiming the research there was superior to uh, what happened in Britain. But then there is the whole sort of another topic which I don't explore particularly in the book, but explored in some, um, another article of mine, um, and that's how orientologists in particular compared the Russian Empire and particularly Russian policies in Central Asia and um, British policies in India. Mm-hmm. And, of course, not surprisingly, many Russian um, authors claim that Russian imperialism is much uh, more benign uh, than rapacious and racially motivated British imperialism in India. But one, again, should be very careful taking at face value these statements because each uh, empire claimed moral superiority of its imperial project at the time. Um, I don't know whether I answered the question. Oh, yeah, that's very interesting. But uh, one thing you said was that, you know, like the German counterparts, the Russian Oriental lodges, you know, they tended to be scholars, you know, as opposed to colonial administrators. 
So were the Russian colonial administrators not very interested in theorizing or was there some kind of official discouragement, you know, that they shouldn't come home and talk about what they'd seen about the peoples they were governing? I mean, what was the situation with them? Uh, the Russian colonial administrators did uh, leave a kind of large legacy as well. Um, and uh, there were also scholars who taught, let's say, in St. Petersburg, uh, University or Kazan University, another center of orientologists, and at the same time worked very closely with the government and did specific projects uh, for the government. My group had, in a way, more ambivalent uh, attitude to the Tsarist government, uh, and criticized those fellow academics who in, got involved too much in sort of developing uh, imperial policies. But then uh, what I discuss in the book, but there is also other scholars who explored it in more detail. In the, interestingly, in the 1920s, it's precisely the group of scholars I'm interested in who started to work very closely with the Soviet um, regime. But shall I um, sort of um, probably finish uh, talking about why I think um, Russian scholarship of the time was kind of so uh, revisionist? Oh, yeah, sure. Because um, what I think um, really happens in uh, Russia in the early 20th century is um, uh, that not only the processes which stimulated um, kind of revisionist intellectual pursuits everywhere across Europe. You have uh, Russia's war with Japan, which was perceived as a war between a European and Asian state, and for the first time in, uh, in um, several centuries, it's the so-called Asian state which wins. Then you have the First World War, uh, which made many European intellectuals doubt that actually there was a moral superiority or any superiority of European civilization if such terrible war could have happened um, in Europe. But in Russia, uh, this kind of um, the processes uh, which were initiated by these dramatic events across Europe were even more dramatic because obviously the revolution happened in uh, 1917. Um, and uh, in particular in the 1920s, we, are, we have Russian scholars articulating a particularly strong critique of the relationship between imperialism and um, Oriental studies, which I'm arguing in the book directly influenced Said, in fact. Um, in um, Russia in the 1920s, it's understandable why it was the questioning of every possible uh, intellectual assumption. The world in front of the eyes of these intellectuals fell apart and things which seemed natural uh, before were revealed as mere social constructs. But then there was another important feature that at the turn of the 20th century we saw an influx into Russian universities in the center, particularly St. Petersburg University, of the representatives of non-European minorities. And what I am uh, arguing in the book, it's that the co this cooperation between the scholars I've talked about, but also representatives of uh, these minorities, particularly um, Buddhist, members of Buddhist communities, such as Buryats. Uh, and this relationship was very, very important, 
why Russian scholarship in the early 20th century was so innovative. Um, so sorry that I kind of intersected uh, like that. No, no, that's fine. It's, uh, I mean, the author knows best, and I mean, it's about uh, presenting your own work. Mm-hmm. So, um, if you're done with that, uh, we were talking about minorities, and uh, you mentioned in the book, in fact, like you strongly emphasize in the book, that there was this trend of uh, asking minority communities or minority nations to actually imagine themselves, you know, as, you know, or encourage their sense of having a distinct ethnic identity from that of, well, what you call through Russians. Um, could you tell us something about that policy and how it evolved and shifted over time and what were the implications? Mm-hmm. Um, yes, so, um, of course, at the time, every empire um, tried to um, sort of deal with a rise of national movements. There was very similar developments within the British Empire in um, India. Um, and what we should remember that at the time, now we understand that imperialism and nationalism very often pull political communities in opposite directions. That ultimately, nationalism destroys empires. But um, hundred uh, over a hundred years ago, um, when the empires still existed, uh, it seemed that it would be possible to accommodate. National, growing nationalist of minorities, of colonial people within the imperial framework. And in Russia, there was a sort of uh, huge debate at the turn of the 20th century about how to uh, integrate uh, minorities, uh, ensuring the preservation of the imperial borders of the state. And my group of uh, academics came up with a sort of interesting solution. They were arguing that uh, rather than russifying non-Russian minorities, suppressing uh, their kind of sense of cultural distinctiveness, uh, one should, on the contrary, cultivate this cultural distinctiveness. It, of course, would be good that if uh, minorities would then learn uh, about Russian culture, Russian language, but it's very important uh, that they know their own historical cultural traditions, they have literacy in their own language, and they're proud about their own uh, sort of uh, cultural heritage. It's only, they argued, if one is proud about one's own origins, one can relate to a larger political entity. And here I am saying that in a way, they extrapolated their own experience onto the others, because all these people we're talking about, they were not ethnic Russians, they were either ethnic Germans or ethnic Poles, or uh, in Mars' case, uh, from the Caucasus, and they could combine uh, their loyalty to the Russian state and Russian culture uh, with their own kind of perception of um, distinct identity which they got from their parents. Um, And so uh, when the revolution, the first Russian revolution of 1905 took place, um, national movements emerged or became uh, very active right across Russia, not just in the western uh, parts of the Russian Empire, 
but in the eastern parts, among smaller minority groups like Buryats or Abkhaz in um, the Caucasus. Uh, and of course, uh, let's say conservative, we, we can use this word, um, specialist on the Orient and the Tsarist government, they were terrified about this uh, movement. While the people I'm looking at, uh, they were absolutely delighted. Uh, they saw it as a sign that uh, local people cared about their lives, that they wanted to be politically engaged. And 1905 is precisely the period when um, leaders of this national movements, which are leaders of the movements, political movements, which emerged in the imperial periphery during the first Russian revolution, started to talk about their local communities as nations, use the language, modern language of uh, nationalism. And... Um, the most successful leaders of this movement, interestingly, were precisely those members of minority communities who came to St. Petersburg a couple of decades or a decade earlier to study and who got involved with the orientologist I am looking at. And in my book, I show how these perceptions of um, non-European communities across Russia as nations started to be formulated in the fire of 1905 revolution and this uh, imagining was a joint program project of local people and uh, these uh, orientologists and again I show that orientologists tended to support a particular vision of the nation between in each community there were different kind of possible definition, different factions within the movement, and the orientologists I'm interested in from St. Petersburg um, supported a particular vision, particular understanding of the nation. And then 1917 revolutions take place, first in February when the Tsar abdicated, and then in October when the Bolsheviks came to power. And the Bolsheviks initiated a very interesting project. Uh, they in 1917, the Russian Empire fell apart, uh, but the Bolsheviks recreated that empire uh, through the civil war, very brutal uh, civil war. But they kind of appreciated that nationalism could be a force uh, which would destroy this multi-ethnic uh, old empires. And they wanted to bring two together. They wanted to keep this huge state, but at the same time, they understood that needed to make a concession towards national aspirations. And in many ways, what I'm saying, they continued the ideas which were first articulated by the orientologists I'm interested in, in the late imperial period. Uh, and the, um, in the Soviet Union of, um, in the 1920s, uh, the country was divided into ethnic autonomies. And politically, these autonomies were very weak. But culturally, Local people had a lot of say about schools, about, uh, let's say, creation of alphabets for the communities which didn't have um, uh, their own uh, literacy and cultural policy in general. And I'm showing in the book how um, in many areas these policies were, again, a joint project uh, between the orientologists and the people 
who came, local people who came to study in St. Petersburg at the early 20th century. So it's the same networks which were established in the first decade of the 20th century continue to operate in the 1920s. Then in the late 1920s, Stalin can start consolidating his power and relatively liberal uh, policies towards nationalities started to be uh, reversed, started to be changed. And eventually, um, Leningrad orientologists and uh, representatives of ethnic minorities perished together in the purges, Stalin's purges of the 1930s. Um, and, but basically the kind of the freedom which, uh, these networks had in the 1920s came to an end, uh, by 1928, 29, 1930. Um, and, uh, scholars have always argued that, uh, the end, uh, of, um, the, the fallout between these representatives ultimately of the pre-revolutionary period and the new Soviet government was related to the fact uh, that even though these pre-revolutionary representatives uh, try to appropriate the language of Marxism, socialism, in order to serve the contemporary demand, the demands of the contemporary government, uh, they were non-Marxists, they were non-socialists, non-communists, they were skeptical about sort of the political, the key political ideas of Bolshevism, and that's why they were eventually, um, the activities were stopped. But what I'm showing in the book, it seems to me that the key disagreement was about how nation should be understood. And uh, for the orientologists I'm looking at, and representatives of Buryatia or Abkhazia with whom they cooperated, the key elements of um, identity were religion, but also the ancient past. And that's not the elements which particularly interested the communist government, and particularly religion. Uh, the attempt was to eradicate religion, while the groups in the 1920s put religion at the center of uh, people's identities. But the religion and not ethnicity as such. Um, that ethnicity um, sort of was important part of the religion, and this cultural heritage going back to activity was seen as a key element of ethnicity, rather than sort of attempts to remold uh, ethnic or other class identities according to the kind of Bolshevik model. So what kind of a longer term legacy did the Leningrad orientologists have? I mean, you know, like let's say in modern Russia, I mean, do you have any traces of their influence anymore? Yeah, that's a, again a very good question and I um, end my book uh, with comments on that. In today's Russia, there is a lot of interest. Again, uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991 led to what we can say was a crisis of identity uh, for the Russians. They lost the imperial state, they lost the superpower status. Um, and the debate began about how Russia should be understood as part of the West, part of the East, both. And uh, currently a very popular 
way of explaining, understanding Russia, it's to say that Russia was a Eurasian country, is a Eurasian country, so that East and West sort of meets um, in um, Russia, and it's a very sort of special world. And again, this Eurasian movement, the idea that Russia was really not Europe, uh, and something very special, very separate, uh, was articulated precisely in the period I'm discussing in my book, uh, in the 1920s. And the Eurasian movement was an interesting movement in a way that um, its leaders were questioning Eurocentrism, were saying that it was completely uh, sort of inappropriate to talk about any society as inferior to the other, and all this talk about inferiority, superiority, is because Europe is seen as a yardstick according to which everything is measured and why this should be. That's completely arbitrary sort of yardstick. But, uh, in fact, the Eurasian movement was a conservative movement, and it saw Russia as a very closed kind of entity, um, antagonistic towards Europe. Uh, but when one, the so-called East was presented more positively by Eurasians, uh, but if we look closely at their writing, you can see that they really believe the main leaders of the Eurasian movement, they believe that Orthodox Christianity was superior to any sort of Eastern uh, religions uh, and certainly um, superior to um, Buddhism or Hinduism. And I'm arguing in my book that the group of scholars around this Victor Rosen, uh, they were much more liberal. They uh, saw Russia as an open entity, not a closed totality, but an open, constantly changing sort of entity. They also questioned Eurocentrism. Uh, they didn't think that Europe should be seen as a sort of yardstick. Uh, but they were not antagonistic towards Europe, and they thought that Russia should engage with a sort of whole world. And in today's Russia, uh, as I said, there's enormous interest in the um, thinkers of the past, but the tendency is to be interested in the conservative thinkers. And so Eurasian ideas are very popular, but much more uh, liberal and, to my mind, actually creative and constructive ideas of the group of people whom I'm looking at are not really um, sort of much in demand. Now, in non-Russian uh, ethnic autonomies of the Russian Federation, like in Buryatia, uh, or in um, newly independent, now not newly independent states of the former Soviet Union uh, and autonomies there, like Abkhazia um, within Georgia, there is awfully a lot of interest in the ideas of uh, this first generation of uh, representatives of minorities who came to study in St. Petersburg in the early 20th century and then became leaders of uh, um, national movements in 1905 and were very active in the 1920s. Um, so uh, the representatives of the Buryat communities, of Abkhaz communities, uh, which I discuss, whom I discuss in my book, they are now national heroes in the post-Soviet space in the, non-Russian areas of the post-Soviet space.
Um, that's fascinating. And uh, actually, do you think your future research could actually uh, develop these ideas further? Um, uh, in some, uh, yes, I hope yes to continue um, working uh, on um, uh, these topics, these issues, these themes. Um, well, my current project um, is actually contemporary, so I tend to switch from the <laughs> studying history to uh, contemporary uh, developments and then going back into history. It's about how uh, Russia's multi-ethnicity, because today's Russia is still a multi-ethnic uh, state with ethnic autonomies uh, within uh, the Russian Federation, how this ethnic diversity is represented in the Russian media and particularly on state-controlled television. Um, and again, how the government uses television in order to um, enhance ethnic cohesion within the state, because uh, there are uh, quite serious ethnic tensions uh, in um, Russia today. And so I'm looking at representation techniques, but also on the effectiveness of those representation techniques. Um, that was great. Um, actually, is there anything more you'd like to tell us about the book or about your work? Yeah, so um, about the current work. Yeah, or about the book or anything that you feel you'd like to elaborate upon, which we haven't touched on in the interview. Okay. So um, uh, maybe kind of a couple of general observation in connection with a sort of uh, with a book. Um, yeah. Uh, the kind of larger questions uh, it raises. Um, uh, the kind of the main question is about how uh, we, uh, any society, understands sort of foreign cultures. And uh, usually then these understandings are very complex. And of course, stereotyping and measuring a foreign culture according to a yardstick, which is set by your own, by the culture of the observer, always takes place. And um, even in my book, I'm quite careful uh, about uh, saying that, um, uh, of course, stereotyping uh, and kind of Saidian elements uh, do not uh, disappear completely from the writings uh, of the scholars I'm interested in. Um, but we should understand that this engagement with foreign cultures are always very, very complex, and they can't fit one particular model. In each society, you have different groups, and they engage differently with um, sort of with the other, um, so to speak. And also, we should look at um, sort of individual periods um, very carefully. And uh, what was true, for instance, uh, in terms of how in Europe the so-called Orient was um, understood, what was true in the between the 1830s and 1880s uh, won't continue to be true for in the next 40 years. So we should kind of um, understand that perceptions of the other within societies change um, with um, time. So that's the point I would like to um, make. Um, 
and um, then um, uh, um, another issue which sort of um, came to my mind um, when I was working on the book is how Russia itself um, has been sort of historically orientalized, so to speak, in the writings of academics, but uh, also journalists, uh, uh, let's say throughout the um, 20th century in particular. Um, and uh, uh, it's uh, sort of surprising that if you look at um, more recent sort of post-colonial uh, studies of um, the Europeans' engagement with the Orient, usually there are very few, mostly no references to Russia at all, even though in the, uh, let's say, late 19th, early 20th century, um, Russian orientologists were really part and parcel of a kind of pan-European academic milieu. And this exclusion of Russia uh, is uh, the result of the fact that, particularly during the Cold War, Russia was part of the disconstructed East. Uh, and this, uh, and in, in, in some ways, yes, the uh, Russian sort of scholarship, Soviet scholarship, uh, uh, when the communist government um, was in Moscow, was isolated from Western scholarship. But this isolation of a later period was extrapolated into the earlier period. Um, and uh, particular scholars should be mindful of um, not making this mistake, which already was criticized by academics uh, in the past. Um, and that's the comment in relation to um, sort of my historical work in the book Russia's on Orient. Um, and in connection with my current work on um, Russia, uh, what I found sort of... Uh, in a way fascinating and um, unexpected um, is that I uh, start working on the Russian media, the representation of ethnic diversity, uh, expecting a great level of uh, state control because we've heard a lot uh, from the media and critics inside Russia about how um, uh, particularly under Vladimir Putin um, the regime really sort of reinstated some of the Soviet methods of controlling the public, controlling uh, uh, the media, controlling political, cultural sphere. But in fact, uh, yes, there is a, a degree of control, there is attempt at control, but the old mechanisms of control are in fact so much undermined and so almost destroyed that I was surprised to see how ineffective this control is and what a plurality of opinions uh, you have expressed, even in the state-controlled media. And those managing the media have no idea what to do with this plurality. So my preliminary um, conclusion is that uh, while Russia has high levels of ethnic tensions, there is a really big problem. And ethnic tensions between sort of Slavs, sort of ethnic Russians, particularly in big cities like Moscow, St. Petersburg, and citizens of the Russian Federation itself, who come from the Caucasus, uh, but also 
migrants from now uh, independent states of Central Asia. There is a lot of tension between these different groups. And neither the government nor the state-controlled media, uh, which is supposed to promote ethnic cohesion, know, they have no idea what to do with the problem. So in a way, this is actually a very worrying development. Um, that's actually uh, very interesting. I mean, in terms of looking at uh, how perceptions of what constitutes Russia have evolved, but and I'd really like to discuss this further. But unfortunately, you've taken up a lot of your time, so I'm afraid we'll have to let you go now. But thanks very much for doing this for us, and it was really an illuminating interview. Thank you very much uh, for inviting me to speak and uh, to discuss my book. I really, really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you very much. Oh, it was a pleasure. Goodbye. Goodbye. So, Fox, that was Orientology as it played out on the Eurasian steps. Proof for me and for all you Anglophone listeners out there that there was more to the Great Bay than the Great Game. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Goodbye.